as it's uh, been mentioned, we've uh, finished off our series on the parables of Jesus, and we're going to be starting a new series on uh, the prophet Isaiah. So just before we dive into that little book, as David said, let's uh, spend a moment in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning. We are small in numbers this morning with it being a holiday weekend, but our hearts are great for you. And our desire is great for not only your knowledge in our life, but your wisdom in our life as well. And I pray that as we open this great book from your prophet Isaiah, that we would glean from it the lessons that you would have us come to know in this 21st century. That we can apply them to our lives and that we can make them grow in such a way that your word, your spirit, and your love would burst forth from us into this world around us. Be with us as we continue on in the service this morning. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start off with a reading, not from the book of Isaiah, but from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18, starting at verse 14. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire any more, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. You may say to yourself, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Isaiah was a prophet chosen by God to be his messenger. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a prophet? What is an Old Testament prophet or First Testament prophet, as I sometimes refer to that book? The office of the prophet was established by God just before the Israelites were to enter the promised land. Now, there may have been prophets before that time, but the actual office of the prophets was established during this time in Deuteronomy. That time when God was giving the rules that the Israelites were to live by when they entered this promised land. And he was telling them, I'm going to give you somebody who's going to speak on my behalf and who's going to give you the messages that I have for you. The occult was very present in the land was going to uh, give the Israelites. And God commanded the Israelites, you are to have no part of what goes on in that land. Now, the office of the Old Testament prophet was different from a person who has the gift of prophecy, as spoken of in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, it reads, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, 
some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure, the fullness of Christ. See, the gift of prophecy that's part of the church age that we now live in is not about predicting future events or giving direct revelation from God the way the Old Testament prophets did. But rather it was about building up the church and empowering the body of Christ through the interpretation and teaching of God's word that's found in the Bible. The office of the Old Testament prophet was totally different. The best way to understand what an Old Testament prophet is is to look at four terms that's used to describe what an Old Testament prophet was. In the first term that we have, a prophet was called a seer, that is, one who sees. Saul, who had not yet been anointed Israel's first king, was with his servant, and they were out in the, uh, on the countryside looking for some donkeys that had gotten away. And a servant said to Saul, let's go inquire of the seer and get his advice. And Saul thought this was a good idea. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 9, there's an interesting description of what a seer is. And this is in brackets. And here's a little insight way back before our time. In the writing of this time of the book of 1 Samuel, the author had put in brackets an explanation of what a seer was because it was even foreign to the people at that time. But in it, it reads, Formerly in Israel, if a man went to inquire of God, he would say, Come, let us go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Thus, the first term that there was to describe what an Old Testament prophet was. Now, eventually the term prophet took the place of the seer, and that's our second term that we have. The actual word prophet itself. Now, prophet means one who is called. And in its usage, it means one who speaks for another. So when you put the two together, we have one who is called, who speaks for another. That's the second term that we have in the Old Testament prophet. The third term found in the Bible is that the prophet was a man of God. And we can find evidence of this in 2 Kings verse, chapter 4, verses 7. She went and told the man of God. And he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. This is the story of the widow whose husband had died and the creditors were at her door demanding that she pay what she owed. She had nothing to pay, so he was threatening to take her two sons in payment for what she owed. She went to the prophet Elisha. And Elisha had told her, and it's a wonderful story, most of you probably know it, go gather all the jars you can. Whatever you can find, gather. And she kept filling what little bit of oil she had. And she poured it into these jars. And they kept filling and filling and filling. Until she had enough not only to pay her debts, but to live on for the rest of her life, presumably. And it's recorded that she went and told the man of God, that is the prophet Elisha, and then he told her what to do with the oil. 
The term man of God describes his character. He was a godly man. And it makes sense that if God was going to call somebody to speak on his behalf, that he would pick somebody who is after the ways of the God, of God himself. That is, somebody who had a desire to serve God. Well, the fourth term that we have in the, in the office of the prophet is a watchman. And this is found in Ezekiel, another prophet. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I had made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. Now, watchmen were centuries that were placed around the outskirts of a town or a city, and they were to keep watch. And if there was danger spotted, they were to sound the alarm, and those can take up defense. As God's watchmen, prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah were responsible for sounding the alarm of the impending judgment to the nation of Israel, or in Isaiah's case, Judah. They were to be the city's watchmen to give warning that God is putting you on notice. So here we have four terms used to describe the Old Testament prophet. He was a seer, he was a prophet, he's a man of God, and he's a watchman. It's interesting to note that the office of prophet was the opposite of the office of priesthood. Now, both of these offices came into being around the same time, and they were both instituted by God himself. But the office of the priest was to be man's representative to God, whereas the office of the prophet was to be God's representative to man. Now, while there are recorded apprenticeships, of prophets, such as Elijah, who apprenticed or discipled under the prophet Elijah, there was no formal schooling for a prophet. There was no formal institution or university that you could go to and get a degree in prophet, and then you go out and you intern as a prophet, and then you work your way up the prophet ladder. None of that ever existed. God chose those he wanted to be prophets. You couldn't even apply to the job. There wasn't a job posting that was ever put out there for profit. God chose those he wanted to serve and to be his representative for him. God equipped those he called. No prior experience was required. And for the prophets, it was a hard life. They often had a message that people didn't want to hear. Oftentimes they were persecuted, they were beaten, their lives were in danger, and some of them were even martyred for what they did. Now, I tried to think of a modern-day occupation that would compare to a prophet, not in the job description or the duties that a prophet had, but rather with the trials and the tribulations that the prophets, like Isaiah as another, faced. And they dealt a lot of trials. And then it came to me, an NHL goalie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, but when you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, here's somebody whose job is to give the people what they want. And that's a net devoid of pucks. And they spend their time in front of that net. But when they get it wrong, everybody turns against them. Or when he doesn't give them what they want, people turn against them. I mean, what other occupation do you know 
that when you make a mistake, a red light goes off behind you, a referee points to the net pointing out your mistake, you get to watch it over and over again on this big jumbotron in slow motion. It's not bad enough that five people in front of you let the puck by them, but when you did it, and if it's bad enough, it even makes the misplays of the month on the sports channel. And you can watch it for 30 days over and over again. But the big difference, and this is a huge difference between an NHL goalie and a prophet, is that an NHL goalie was being booed by those he served because he made a mistake. Whereas the prophets were being booed and persecuted because they got it right. They were simply bringing the message that God gave them to the people. And I wonder if that's where the expression, don't shoot the messenger came, was from the prophets themselves. I'm only giving you what God told me to give you. But nonetheless, the prophets did just that. They didn't have a choice. God didn't give them a choice. But they suffered much because of it. Well, that's a, a quick look at what the Old Testament office of the prophet is. And let's take a look at the book of Isaiah itself. Isaiah is the first of the four major prophets in the Old Testament. There's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now, they were called major prophets not because of what they did, not because they were greater themselves than what would be the minor prophets, but simply because the books that are recorded of them are larger than all the others. So they called them the major prophets. And Isaiah is the largest book, so it's first. And how large, do you ask, is the book of Isaiah? Well, it's 24 feet long. At least that's what the scroll is that they found in Qumran. That's the oldest account, the oldest um, um, scroll that we have that dates back, that's complete, that is the book of Isaiah. And it's actually on display in a museum in, in Israel, in uh, Jerusalem. And they have a room dedicated to a lot of what was found in Qumran. And there's a huge cylinder in the room, and you can walk around it. And the, uh, a copy, a, a duplicate of the scroll is uh, attached to the outside of the cylinder, and you can walk around it. And if you could read Hebrew, you could read it. But just make sure you walk around it clockwise, or else you'll be reading it backwards. But it is, it is a big book. It's 66 chapters in length. And uh, it's easy to read, but it's difficult at times to follow because of uh, the messages that are being portrayed. Um, the language isn't complicated, but it does take some thought and some contemplation to understand just what God was doing in this time period. Isaiah lived and prophesied during the reign of five kings. Um, there's King Uzziah, who's also called Azariah, there was Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and finally Manasseh. Now, tradition has it that Isaiah was martyred at the command of King Manasseh. So I don't think he actually got to do a lot of prophesying during his reign, but he was still alive during the reign of King Manasseh. Um, Uzziah was the first king that was there when Isaiah came on the scene, and Uzziah's reign, became, reign began 790 B.C., and it lasted for 52 years now. It looks like Isaiah started to prophesy towards the end of Uzziah's reign. And Isaiah prophesied for at least 58 years. So if you put the numbers together, Isaiah prophesied around 
seven to seven hundred and fifty years before Christ came upon this earth. Now Isaiah's call to become a prophet was dramatic to say the least. And the account of that is found in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. And uh, it's unlike any other call to office I've ever read. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell the people, Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. How's that for a job orientation? I've never heard of one like that before in modern times. Now, seraphs are only mentioned here, and this is interesting, they're not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, but seraph means something burning and dazzling, and I can just imagine Isaiah, as he witnessed this, what he must have been thinking at the time, certainly woe to me. Isaiah's call to be a prophet is undeniable, and the proof that he carried God's messages is the fact that the prophecies were fulfilled, both in his time and in future times, as we can read about and as we'll be studying in this book over the coming months. Isaiah was a prophet in the land of Judah. Now Israel by this time had been split into two halves because of civil war. Israel in the north and Judah to the south. The nation of Assyria would begin its conquest of Israel to the north during this time period and would also be a threat to Judah as well. Now to put this geographical history into context of size. In Canada, we can't think about the size of Israel like we think about nations like Canada and the U.S. The modern-day state of Israel is about the same size and shape as Lake Erie. It's just a tiny little piece of the world. Now, in biblical times, it was a little bit bigger, maybe about 40% bigger at the most, but 40% bigger of something little. It's not that much big to start with. A lot of history should happen within this little tiny part of the world. There's also some debate in modern times that has gone on as to whether the book of Isaiah was written by one person or more than one person called Isaiah, or perhaps the second part of it was even written by some um, disciples who had come onto the scene uh, afterwards. And the reason there's some thought behind this is because the book of Isaiah breaks into two parts. Uh, chapter 40, it breaks into a part that seems to take place about 200 years later, when Isaiah is speaking about uh, future events, Babylon and the king of Persia and Cyrus. So there's been some debate about that. And I, I simply bring this up because if you decide to 
take a, a closer look at Isaiah yourself and to do some study, you're going to come across this. Myself, I, I feel that Isaiah was written by one person. Um, I think there's enough internal evidence and enough external evidence from writings outside of the Bible to indicate that Isaiah was written by one person. And if you study into this, I'll leave that up to you to come up to your own conclusions. Uh, this isn't a deal breaker for the book of Isaiah, but I just point it out because it is out there. Isaiah is a complex book. There's a lot of layers to it. Isaiah is quoted over 60 times in the New Testament by both Jesus, as we heard earlier, and the Apostles. Now, the book itself can be broken down into seven sections, and this really helps to uh, um, sort out some of the complexity of it. The first 12 chapters of the book of Isaiah focus on the calling of Isaiah and God's message of warning to Judah during the prosperous days of this kingdom. Chapters 13 to 23 reveals God's messages <coughs> through Isaiah to all the nations around Judah, both her enemies and her allies. And chapters 24 to 35 are about a view of the earth's future and specific messages to people of Judah as they faced a serious imminent invasion. Chapters 36 to 39 changed direction a bit <clears throat> as we learned about the crisis that was faced by King Hezekiah and with the focus on the book switching from Assyria to Babylon, which would be more in the future. Chapters 40 to 48 look into that distant future, some 200 years down the road, in which Babylon is now Judah's greatest threat. Chapters 49 to 55 contain words of hope about a final deliverance through a suffering servant. And remember that name, the suffering servant. This is where our study of Isaiah is going to really begin in earnest over these coming months. And we're going to spend about half of our time in chapters 49 to 55. And finding chapters 56 to 66 concludes the book with general warnings to Judah and to a view of the future. Well, how was Judah doing spiritually when Isaiah came onto the scene. We can read about that in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 69. You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination, like the Philistines, and clasp hands with the pagans. Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to the chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers had made. So man will be brought low, and mankind humbled. Remembering back to what I read at the start from Deuteronomy chapter 18, God was warning the people, you're going into a land that I'm going to give you. I'm wiping these nations out that are in this land because they did things that were detestable to me, and I cannot put up with that. All of a sudden we have the story of Judah, doing some of the very same things that the people were before they entered that land. How they had sunk to a low, I don't know how they got there. It's not told us that. But we do know that they were at a place in a point in time that uh, God was not happy with them. God was warning the people as he prepared them for the promised land. And God was warning the people now 
as they inhabited the promised land. You guys are on a path that I can't put up with. Judah had indeed taken on herself many of those practices. They practiced sorcery, divination, or fortune telling. Judah had become prosperous and was putting her trust in her wealth and worshipping her own creations instead of the true God whom they owed everything to. <coughs> King Ahaz <coughs> King Ahaz became king early in Isaiah's ministry. And when the surrounding countries threatened Judah with invasion, Ahaz sought Isaiah's advice, and this is perfect. Who else would you look to except to God's representative to the people? In God's message to King Ahaz, stay calm, don't panic, just trust me. The problem was is that Ahaz didn't stay calm. He didn't take Isaiah's warning, he didn't take Isaiah's advice that God was giving him. Instead, Ahaz made a treaty with Assyria. And in the short term, the treaty did work. Ahaz had the security he desired under Assyria's domain, which was a great nation at that time. But that protection came at a great cost. Eventually, the influence of the more powerful nation of Assyria worked its way into Judah, and Ahaz adopted many of the practices that God had forbidden the Israelites to be a part of, and that God found detestable in his sight. Ahaz invited the army of Assyria into the land, and Ahaz realized too late that the mistake was made when that same army didn't want to leave. There's another more modern-day example of that that happened during World War II. Poland was one of the first countries that the Nazi regime invaded in 1939, and they occupied Poland. And in 1944, the Polish people cheered as they heard the sound of Russian tank tracks coming towards their borders. And they felt that Russia was going to drive out the Nazi regime and they would once again be free. The only problem was the Russian tanks stayed in Poland for decades and decades later. It wasn't until the late 80s, early 90s that they finally started to leave. God had had enough and Isaiah was bringing a warning of destruction that was to come because of Judah's disobedience. The land God had given Israel was taken from the previous inhabitants, as I said earlier, as punishment because of their detestable practices and the ways in the eyes of the Lord. And now Jews' practices and lifestyle have become just as detestable to God. God needed to punish his chosen people, not because he wanted to, but because of their disobedience. And God's punishment, though severe as he was calling, was just and deserved. God desired restoration with those that he loves. Just as a wayward child needs to be disciplined and corrected, God the loving Father needed to do the same with his children. More and more Canada turns from worshipping and relying on God to worshipping the things our hands have made, to relying on our wealth. And I think there's a lesson for us as a country in the book of Isaiah as well, that we need to pay heed to. Nowhere does the book of Isaiah minimize the pain Israel went through, and Isaiah endures it with the rest of the nation. He suffered the pain right along with him. He lived in the country. 
in the final chapter of Isaiah, God puts it into poetic perspective. God makes it clear that the pain was not arbitrary or purposeless, but just like childbirth, this pain leads to something beautiful and good. Isaiah records how that pain before the restoration would occur. God speaks of how he would use nations like Assyria and later Babylon to bring about his plan for the ultimate restoration of uh, Judah, of the, Israel, uh, the nation of Israel. But before that restoration could occur, the punishment had to take place. People had to realize they can't just do what they want, live as they want, and be happy. It works for a little bit, and sometimes uh, um, happiness is kind of in the eye of the person who is happy. But happiness is such a fleeting emotion. You uh, meet that person you fall in love with. You're the happiest person in the world. But the day that relationship breaks up, happiness is gone in an instant. It, it just vanishes. You get that dream job that you've always wanted, and you're the happiest person in the world until the company downsizes and you get a pink slip and happiness is gone. So the Israelites, I think, were looking for happiness rather than looking for a joy that God was offering them. They were looking for a peace and a contentment in a world that was nothing more than turmoil and upheaval. Whereas God offers a peace and a contentment even in a world that is full of turmoil and upheaval. He's mentioned a little bit about this morning, about rejected love. Well, God's love was rejected here. And God had to find that way to bring the people back to him again. Now, not all of Israel is about Judah's disobedience and God's punishment. Hezekiah was a king who came and he heeded the warnings that Isaiah prophesied. Hezekiah, though not perfect, was one of Judah's best kings. He stopped the idol worship and he led people to repentance. He reintroduced the worshiping of God by bringing the temple in Jerusalem back into prominence and back into a central focus of Judah's spiritual life. Not all was doom and gloom during the time of Isaiah, but unfortunately, Hezekiah wasn't the only king. There were kings before him and kings after him that simply allowed or wanted the kingdom to slip back into her old ways again. Now we're not going to be going through the book chapter by chapter. Rather, we're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah in a series of themes, starting at chapter 42. And I encourage you to read the whole book over the next three months that we're going to be uh, looking at Isaiah. It's less than a chapter a week. But if you've never read Isaiah, or if you haven't read it for a long time, you'll be surprised at the number of familiar verses in there. There are verses in there that even the secular world has grasped onto. They will beat their swords into plowshares. I've heard politicians, I've heard peace activists use this, um, um, this quote. I don't know if they even know where it comes from. But other quotes, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Quotes of the coming Messiah. At Christmas time, we often hear portions of Isaiah read. The uh, New Testament authors punctuated their manuscripts with quotes from Isaiah. The book is full of beauty, intrigue, it's full of complexity, 
It can be difficult to understand, but not impossible. But it's something you have to put an effort into. So I encourage you over these coming months, don't just read a few verses Sunday morning before you come to church, but spend some time in the book of Isaiah and get to know what God was trying to tell his people, how he wanted to have that relationship back with his people that the people had wandered away from. God wants that relationship with us. And I think in North America, in so many ways we've wandered from God. And I think we're suffering because of it. There's so much more that we could be blessed with, that God wants to bless us with, that we're missing out on. Because as a nation, we wandered away from God. We've practiced sorcery, divination. We worship the things that our hands have made, whether they be celebrities, whether they be athletes, whether they simply be the wealth that is in our country. But God wants that relationship with us. And we have to take heed to the warnings too, that we too could be facing destruction because of our disobedience towards God. So we're going to be spending three months in the book of Isaiah. And I think it'll be a very profitable three months. Do we have a closing? I'll uh, pass it back to David and Vicki, and afterwards I'll let David close in prayer. Father, of uh, your prophets, your message, your message to us, that you would build in our hearts that kingdom that you want to build here, and that we would extend it through your power, your, your work to the world around us, and we pray that we might be your faithful messengers as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.